0: there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from P.S. Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books With Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books With Hooks. As per usual, we're going to dive straight in. Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear
2: Carly, I just logged off Zoom from the deep dive workshop with Jane Friedman, and I have to thank you, Bianca and Cece, for putting together so many ways for emerging writers to learn. It's astounding. Because you're interested in smart book club fiction, my dual POV, 90,000 word upmarket novel, Hands Free, could be what you're looking for. The story of a control freak who loses control. It combines the tone of Emma Straub's Modern Lovers with the troubled marriage of Laura Zygmunt's separation anxiety and the neurodiversity challenges of Ali Benjamin's The Mashup, uh, content warning for disordered eating. One glorious morning, newly separated mom, professional baker, and control freak, Alyssa Stern, breaks both arms in a bicycle accident. The timing couldn't be worse. She's still adjusting to solo parenting. Her artisanal cookie company has just landed an in Influencer's New Year's Eve wedding, and without working arms, Alyssa can't eat away her stress in secret. When her estranged husband, Jeremy, a struggling freelance illustrator with undiagnosed ADHD, learns what happens, he leaps at the chance to repair his marriage. Jeremy moves back in to care for Alyssa and their exuberant daughter, Gertie. But bathing, dressing, and hand-feeding Alyssa while managing his client's demands soon overwhelms him. As Alyssa fights to regain the use of her arms and Jeremy makes life-changing discoveries about the disorder, it turns out he and Gertie share. The big wedding looms. To avoid ruining the event in her business, Alyssa must learn to relinquish control. And to save the Stern's marriage and finally find his professional footing, Jeremy must embrace the unexpected upsides of neurodiversity. Hands Free was inspired by my husband's bike accident, the aftermath of which had me doing everything for him right down to bathroom duty. I found myself wondering what might happen if the roles were reversed. The ADHD angle is informed by my personal experiences, too, since our son has the disorder. I'm a freelance writer with bylines in dozens of publications, including The New York Times and Epicurious and fiction forthcoming in Mom's Egg Review. A personal essay that appeared in the Washington Post was selected for Best Food Writing Anthology. My cookbook, Parents Need to Eat Too, was published in 2012 by William Morrow. My agent for the book only handles nonfiction. For all that, I worked in book publishing. When I left, I was VP of Advertising and Promotion for the Crown Publishing Group. I live in Queens and Narrowsburg, New York, with my husband, our teenage son, and two rather large cats. Following are the first five pages. May I send you the full manuscript? Debbie
0: Koenig. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, word count and your take on that. All right, so I'm sure everybody could notice
2: it was it was a little long winded, had to, had to regain my breath a couple times there. Uh, came in at 4139 words for this one. Okay, definitely, as I said, on, on the longish side there. All right, so starting with our, our hook. So our first opportunity for a hook, our first kind of attempt at a hook, I would say is the line, the story of a control freak who loses control. I just felt like this was our again, our opportunity for our first hook. And it felt a little bit of an everyday occurrence, to be honest with you. There's a lot of type A friends out there, maybe looking at myself in the mirror. Um, but you know, there's there's a lot of type A's out there, right? And so this to me just felt a little bit flat because I'm like, this is our first opportunity, right? And I just didn't think we we delivered we delivered on that. Our content warning for disordered eating, not to diminish it. I just don't think that it necessarily is so dramatic that it maybe needs to be in the query letter. I think it could potentially just be in the synopsis and and be useful here. I think we can move that. So this whole wedding thing as being kind of looming over as this dramatic event, I don't really feel like that pressure, that tension, the stakes of this influencer wedding is big enough. I'm like, unless... Like, she's getting paid, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars for, to bake at this wedding. Like, I just don't understand why this wedding is kind of this time cooker, pressure cooker for us. Just think the little small potatoes. I don't know. That might be a premise issue, but that, that stood out to me. And the climax here we have, to avoid ruining the event and her business, Alyssa must learn, to, again, to relinquish control. We keep coming back to this control. Uh, it just felt like a very passive type of climax for me. And then that just, again, felt like a little like, huh, okay, is that enough? Is that enough to, to hinge, a, hinge a novel on? And then after that, we say, it says, and to save the Sterns' marriage and finally find his professional footing, Jeremy must embrace the unexpected upsides of neurodiversity. I don't know if we need this spelled out. I would honestly just move this to the synopsis. I don't think we need that there. I would also cut the paragraph called Hands Free Was Inspired by My Husband's back Bike Accident. Also, don't think we need this just because we're on the lengthy side with this pitch. I don't know. I'm torn because I'm like, yes, it does obviously infuse personal connection here, but it's so long that I, I think this is, this is the paragraph to go because I think your bio paragraph's great and I wouldn't want to lose words there.
0: Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay. Can you give our listeners an indication of what happens in those opening pages? So our opening pages,
2: we meet Alyssa, our main character. Uh, We open with her kind of getting up early in the morning, working on her pastries before everybody gets up for the day. Her daughter's getting a little late for school, so she's thinking about everything she needs to do. They are what we believe to be kind of like upstate New York type of vibe. The husband or estranged husband ex-husband we're not kind of sure at this point is living in kind of like the airbnb property on like the back part of their property so there he's not living in the main house he doesn't get up with the daughter for the morning so she's like trying to do all this stuff the trying to get her daughter at the door the bus comes the daughter gets on the bus and then all of a sudden we switch to the husband's pov and then then he's kind of like oh shoot i didn't get up again you know i'm like kind of Potentially he's depressed and isn't kind of able to get out of bed and get out of bed and be able to, to help the family. He lights a joint. The wife kind of goes looking for him, opens the door and she's like, there you are. in kind of a low tone. And that's where we end. Wonderful. Thank you. OK, what was your take on them? All right. So I really, I really liked our first paragraph. I think we started out strong. Again, it's cut back to this control thing, but it says Alyssa Stern had everything contro- under control. So, okay. I, I do like that part. Um, I think we overdid it a little bit. There was a line that said, um, Alyssa felt fizzy, like champagne was coursing through her veins. I felt like we were like doubling down a little bit there. I, that's the type of thing um, that I would cut. So, there's a lot of this where I felt like it was, this felt a bit drafty to me. Cause I'm like, right. There would be a line that would be great. And I'd be like, keep this. And then right next time I'm like, cut this. Do you know what I mean? Like it just felt like I really just needed a red pen in there. <laughs> like what, what is useful? I always feel like starting our day in the morning, getting your kid ready for the bus, setting out your clothes for your daughter, feeding the dog like that, that to me, honestly, guys, this is the boring stuff. This is the boring stuff of life. Does this need to be in our novels? I I really think we need to skip over. We need to skip over some of this stuff. There's a line that says already she swept the Oreo crumbs from her bed, stashed the near empty package in the bedside drawer where she and Jeremy used to keep sex toys. Keep that. That's great. And then the next bit, then we're going into like getting the lunchbox ready. That Again, that's the stuff we cut. So keep the sex toys, cut the lunchbox. That's, that's my main note. That's my main note here. Overall, I felt like this could really benefit from really thinking about like, what is the goal of every scene? Are we accomplishing everything we set out to do here? And I couldn't really figure out what we're trying to establish in this opening scene that she has a job. Okay. That the couple is separated. Okay. But like the rest that whole like woman and having a harried life so busy, can't keep her head on straight. I'm like, I don't know. I just wish that maybe something else could have happened in that scene. Then we go to the husband's chapter, chapter two. There's a section I really like, which, again, we're in his point of view. It's third person. But he says, um, have a great day, Noodle. He mutters and stands in the doorway barefoot. I was like, I love that he calls his daughter Noodle. Like, how cute. Just love that. But then it's like he's going to switch on the coffee maker. And, And I'm like, well, we just saw your wife do the coffee maker. So, like, I don't really want to watch both couples turn on the coffee maker in their own POV. So, I honestly think there's a lot of potential here. But it felt a little drafty. I'd be getting the red pen out here.
0: Thank you, Carly. And I think that this stems often from just insecurity as a writer. It's just feeling like you haven't made your point. And so you're going to write extra to make your point. And what I liken it to is think about if you had to do a line drawing of a ballerina. And there are artists in the world who can draw the most beautiful ballerina without ever picking up their pen. They do it all in one go. And it's just the silhouette of the ballet of the ballerina, but we know it's the ballerina. And can you imagine if they then started coloring it in like crazy, just black ink everywhere, that would obliterate the entire ballerina. So more does not clarify something for readers and viewers of art sometimes. Sometimes just having that simple line drawing is going to make it so much more clear than than adding more and more and more and more lines that, that just detracts from that. And that comes with time, it comes with experience, it comes with asking your beta readers please be brutal what doesn't need to be here etc certainly that was the process for me okay cece let's go to your query letter
3: dear cece thank you for taking the time to read my query i love the podcast
1: and hope to have a chance to meet you in person at thriller fest this summer he can't get away with it an adult psychological thriller complete at eighty thousand
3: words will appeal to fans of karen slaughter and is reminiscent of Alison Galen's the collective and samantha downing's he started it poppy morrison is angry at the jerks at the office at her brother at the police but mostly she's angry at greg webster her mom's ex-husband greg violated her family when he stole thousands of dollars from her mother and molested her niece he was not brought to justice by the legal system and has disappeared which eats at the edge of her sanity although her brother wants to move on poppy cannot while searching her mom's garage she stumbles across something that shakes her to her core the missing poster of a little girl madeline who once called greg dad determined to find out what happened to the girl she turns to a popular social media app bird where she meets a group of people who feel the same way she does driven to the brink by perpetrators who got away with victimizing a loved one Poppy teams up with one of her new online friends, Vulture, to investigate Greg and Madeline. Things become urgent when they discover Greg is living with a new woman and two young girls, shifting the mission from search to rescue. Dark fantasies of vengeance punctuate the narratives as Poppy races against time to save the family and discover what happened to Madeline. Driven by rage and influenced by outside sources, Poppy ends up in a situation more dangerous than she could have imagined and finds herself asking, Does she want to bring Greg to justice or exact revenge? Writing under the pen name Olivia Day, I am a longtime lover of thrillers, crime, and mystery. I'm the co-host and executive producer of The Thrillers by the Book Club podcast. I am a graduate of International Thrillers Writers, Online Thriller School, and a member of Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, and I.T.W. In my day job, I work as an enterprise program manager for an advertising technology agency. In my personal life, I'm married to my high school sweetheart and a dog mom to our rescue pup, Ellie. I'm also a caregiver for my mother who has younger onset Alzheimer's. This is my first novel.
0: May I send you the manuscript? Warmest regards, redacted. Awesome, Susie. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count and what was your take on that? This is clocking in at
3: 429 words. Will I see you at Thriller Fest? That's fun. I'm looking forward to that. So minor thing, you're using hyphens instead of em dashes. I would just use the em dash because the em dash is a lot of fun. If you just don't have the em dash in your keyboard or whatever, that, that's fine. I heard that Google Docs doesn't have the em dash. I don't know. I don't use Google Docs, but if that's the case, don't worry about it. The plot paragraphs. There's a clause that reads, she finds the missing poster of the little girl, Madeline, who once called Greg dad. Does this mean that she is his daughter? I guess my question is, I don't know what that clause means. Like, are you trying to say that Madeline was a stepdaughter, but called him dad? Like, what, like I guess that confused me. And I don't want to be confused because that's the impetus that sets her on her hero's journey. I'm also having a plausibility issue with the social media app, because if it's popular, it would be populated by incels. Like, if it's a social media app to bring justice to people who did bad things, then I just don't believe that it would be a popular thing. It'd probably like a buy invitation, hush hush situation more. Really, when I read Poppy Races Against Time to save her family and discover what happened to Madeline, I don't get it. Like, did she did she know? Who, like, did she find out who Madeline is because of the poster? Had she never heard of Madeline before? Did she not know he had a daughter? Or did she not know his daughter was missing? I guess I just don't understand the Madeline connection. And that's leading me to not be curious, but be confused. So I would clarify that.
0: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages?
3: So the protagonist is daydreaming about hurting a hymn sharing that each day has been a struggle to save herself from drowning in anger and resentment. Therapist interrupts her daydream. They're in the middle of a session. She tells the therapist, you know, what she wants to hear. She makes up a lie or at least half a half a truth. They meditate. She really doesn't want to meditate, but she does it anyway. Throughout it all, we see her be angry at Greg. We know that she really doesn't like Greg. Hours later, she's at the car. And she screams. She screams and punches the steering wheel. And that does what the meditation couldn't do, which was release her anger. Then later still, she's at her mom's garage. Well, actually her garage because her mom's now in assisted living. So she needs to find her mom's birth certificate. And that is what happens.
0: Awesome. Okay. What was your take on that?
3: Okay, so... This query letter makes me think that we have to talk about writing styles. The writing style here is quite explanation heavy. There are many novels out there that do this. They're heavy on the explanation. They're successful novels. They're not for my taste. I like curiosity seeds. I like feeling like enough is being withheld um, that I keep turning the pages to find out what's going to happen. I know exactly what's going on. So the writer did a really good job of immersing us in a scene and clarifying everything To a fault almost, because again, I'm there's no room for curiosity. And this doesn't mean that I need to be confused, right? Curiosity and confusion are different things. I need to have specific questions that I feel will be answered as I turn the stories pages. And I'll read a line as an example. I've been seeing this is in the first page. I've been seeing Dr. Sadie Cooper at my friend Kate's insistence. Despite my cynicism, her brand of therapy, a happy mix of meditation and medication, has Void me the last few months and allowed me to function as a semi-coherent human. I've been doing better with keeping my acid pit of rage under control. Notice how that's all explanation, right? Like it's very on the nose explanation. This is a matter of taste. But for me... I think you need to convey information whenever you need to. Like if this is important information for us to know now about her friend Kate having referred her to therapy, how long she's been in therapy, the fact that it's been helpful, the fact that she has rage. If the reader needs to know this now, which I'm not convinced they do, then I think you need to frame it in a way that does not make it explanation heavy. So for example, would she be thinking that Kate might be proud of her? for having agreed to therapy and how Kate now owes her one, or maybe now th- her debt to Kate is repaid because maybe that's why she agreed to do it. Cause she felt like she was indebted to Kate. Would Kate feel differently if she knew she was routinely lying to Dr. Sadie? Cause that would make me go, Oh, so she's lying. Like I want to know more about that. Um, or maybe like, sometimes I wonder if I, what would, how I would be if I had said no to Katie's insistence that I go to therapy. Like, If you frame it in that way, you're adding little layers that just make it more subtle. And I like subtle. It is, however, totally a matter of taste. I also had a plausibility issue because she said that if she shared her daydreams of hurting Greg with her therapist, she would be locked away. I don't think she would. Like, that's just not how it works. Sharing daydreams of hurting people is really common in therapy because you're not doing anything. You're not sharing plans. So I don't think that that would happen. I also... I kept missing in her interiority as she was lying. Doesn't she wonder if the therapist can see through her? Like she's a therapist. She's trained to see through her. Is she that confident that no one can see through her? Did she purposely pick a therapist that she considers to be not very intelligent? Like what was the machinations going on in her head as it turns in terms of that? She mentions that she lost her job. Her therapist doesn't know. Is she not worried about money? Like, can she still afford therapy? Like she needs like someone just lost their job. Financial anxiety needs to kick in unless they're very privileged, in which case other thoughts would have indicated that. I kept highlighting a whole bunch of great lines. I want to say that. I want to take a moment to say there are so many great lines here, but I don't understand why she's in therapy. If it's something that she's just going to lie and if it's the whole, she's going to get locked away thing because of thoughts about hurting a child molester. No, she's not. I don't believe that. So I had a plausibility issue. I will say your style. There are many books out there that do it. I can list a few. It's just not something that I think would be for me because I need curiosity seeds. So if my notes are resonating with you, if you're thinking, okay, I want tension, I want curiosity seeds, I think it's important to have disruption. Tension only happens with disruption. Um, And so I would, I would like, I guess, edit this to reframe it in a different way, but only if they resonate with with you.
0: Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, let's go to you for the second query letter of yours. The Marriage
2: Plots, a queer Jewish contemporary romance novel about a Jane Austen scholar and a bisexual Hebrew school dance teacher, combines the fake dating and academia of, take a hint, Danny Brown, with the cultural pressures and meddling parents of accidentally engaged. The Marriage Plots is complete at 74,752 words and is a standalone novel with series potential. Miri is two semesters from the end of her PhD, after which she intends to move wherever necessary to pursue a tenure-track position. Romance and dating, she feels certain, will only hold her back from achieving her goals. Meanwhile, David dreads the monotony of a traditional nine-to-five career, preferring his low-stress and dead-end job at the university library and his Sunday gig teaching folk dance to kids at the Hebrew school. Having watched his father spend all his time at work with no time for himself or his family, David has no desire to give up his hobbies and free time for a traditional career he fears that if he gets married as his mother hopes he will be forced into a provider role so he forgoes serious relationships to avoid following in his father's footsteps 24 hours into the yom kippur fast david's mother meets Mary, and she jumps at the chance to set her up with her son david and Mary immediately bond over lifetimes of setups and blind dates facilitated by their over eager families and decide to start a fake relationship to dodge future setup attempts but the immediate chemistry between them makes staying platonic surprisingly tough. And before long, Mary and David start questioning what they really want from life and each other. The Marriage plots celebrates the beautiful elements of Jewish culture and identity while also acknowledging the more complicated aspects of a Jewish family dynamics. I am a Jewish freelance editor based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Before leaving the academic world, I wrote my own thesis on Jane Austen's social criticism. And like Mary, I am prone to launching into a Jane Austen lecture whenever the subject arises. I was set up many years ago on Yom Kippur, and the story stuck in the back of my mind until I decided it needed to be put down on paper, and thus The Marriage Plots was born. My professional writing can be found on numerous editorial blogs. The Marriage Plots is my first novel. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, word count and your take on that. All right, this one clocked in at 396 words. I think this is a really fun title. This is a fun concept. This is a really fun plot. I don't know. I didn't really clue in on like how fake the fake dating scenario was until the end of the query letter. So I would probably elaborate a little bit on the fake dating. I don't think we need to add a lot of words in that first paragraph, but I I don't know. I think I'd love to love to kind of get a sense of the stakes of the fake dating maybe in the opening paragraph. I don't know. I just felt like we skimmed over it um, and it's obviously a huge hook to the actual romance. A reminder, I think I say this every time I see this, but round your numbers so you have the exact number of words, which leaves you No room for any like take out a word here and there, right? So let's just round it. You have 74,752. You can even round to 74,500, like round it up 75. I just find it's just easier on the eyes. And again, gives you a little bit of room for editing. So that's what I would recommend. Overall, I would just really put the hook up higher, right? This like decide to start a fake relationship to dodge future setup attempts. I think this is a really cute hook and it just gets buried at the bottom. I'd be putting that way higher up. We're not like super, super long. I mean, we're touching 400 words barely. So I would probably cut the paragraph about celebrating the beautiful elements of Jewish culture because it is infused in the actual material and, and, and pitch here. So I don't think we need to say it. I think we could potentially cut that little mini paragraph. If you feel strongly about it, keep it. But it is infused in the material. And, and therefore, I don't think we need it. That's just me. And I have another line to cut as well in the bio paragraph. But, uh, but yeah, those are my notes. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what was in the opening pages? We start with dialogue between our main character and her mother, talking about coming home for Yom Kippur. She is talking about how she is not going to be doing that, um, and they go back and forth, but how it doesn't work for her. She talks about she's going to see her mother another time, and that's fine. Then she goes into a English 101 lab kind of tutorial, where she's talking to the students. We do go into a kind of like lecture-style we're learning lots of information about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and then she is walking home, back to her roommates, and they're talking
0: about what they're making for for dinner. Amazing. Thank you. Okay, what did you think of them?
2: Okay, so I it, it's honestly really risky to start with dialogue. Because even when it's done really, really well, we still there's still so much we don't know and so much we need to read between the lines and kind of need to understand about this relationship. So we do understand that this is a mother daughter relationship, but it is it is kind of hard, hard to really connect here. So I wanted to like it. To be honest, the actual dialogue felt quite rehearsed. It wasn't really feeling kind of like a loose conversation. It felt quite rehearsed. So I would look at that dialogue again. I didn't really think that was kind of popping as much as it needed to. A lot of things I think can be condensed here. I, I do think we're going into academia too much for my personal taste. I think it's just too much. Um, You know, we're going right into a lecture and, and talking about an actual book. And when there's just so much more opportunity to be learning about character and, and plot. And, and I really honestly think we should get to the meat queue earlier much faster. And we're spending a lot of time here talking about academia and the students and, and everything like that. So overall... I think a lot of it is kind of a little bit leading. So I would kind of just try to relax and and loosen this up a little bit and have a little bit more playful fun with it because it felt a little bit stiff and academic for me.
0: Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, last query letter. Cece? Dear Cece,
3: Carly, and Bianca, I applaud your helpful criticism interspersed with some delightful swearing. It's refreshing to hear Cece's honey-coated voice randomly yell shit in my ears as I rock my 18-month-old to sleep. The Perfect Sham is a 75,000-word psychological thriller set in current-day Scotland, which will appeal to readers who enjoyed the satire of People Like Her by Ellery Lloyd and the emotional complexities in The Push by Ashley Audrain. Mum of three jamie is desperate to escape her insecurities and what she did five years ago under the threat of losing her house a chance encounter with a successful influencer inspires a career path that could turn her life around her new mentor inspires her to masquerade as a flawless instagram mother who has her shit together even while being crushed under the weight of potential postnatal depression money and validation soon arrive but jamie worries about the children's safety and her new friend's agenda her worst fears are realized when four-year-old casey is abducted with thousands of suspects jamie must navigate a delicate path to find her daughter and prevent her darkest secret from coming to light I live with my husband and two children where Scottish weather gives me the perfect excuse to stay indoors and write. When I'm not plotting, I can be found playing Barbies or building Legos. I have attached the first five pages and can't wait to hear your feedback. Thanks, Nikki.
0: Thank you so much, Cece.
3: Okay, what was your take on that and what was the word count? This is 243. I think this is a record. Last week I said that, but actually this is even shorter than last week, so this is really great. So I do want to start off by saying that the whole honey coated voice is very kind, but I think I sound like a chipmunk with asthma. So you need to get your hearing checked. Okay. I love this query letter. It is so well written. It's short. It's to the point. I get exactly what's going on. I, I'm going to have notes for you, but please know that if this lands in my inbox, I'm going to be so happy and I'm just going to request pages. Okay. So You're using inspires twice, really close to each other, about the same thing. So maybe the second time you can just say encourages instead of inspires. It's just to avoid repetition. Your comps are great. I'm going to stop saying what's great about this. What can be better? Okay. Maybe you want to allude to the fact that the secret could put her behind bars because that would specify the stakes. You've mentioned that the secret that she's keeping is a big deal, right? And it can't come out, which I love. It's just more sources of tension. But perhaps if it's the sort of secret that could, I don't know, land her in jail, clarify that because that just makes it even better. But but just like this is excellent. This is a great, great, great job. Like, I really, really like it.
0: High praise indeed. Okay, let's talk about those opening pages. All right. So chapter one, the protagonist
3: is in her room wondering how it came to this. She feels judgment from the stuffed animals around her. And she wonders, well, why should not they judge me? Because everyone else is pinning me to the cross. And it's all her vanity's fault. Her fiance calls out to her from, I think, a different floor. And she thinks he's there. Oh, he's finally here to end it, right? Because everyone's abandoning her. So at first, she hears his footsteps coming closer, but then he leaves. And she thinks, again, this is all her fault. High school taught her that you're never more vulnerable than when you think you're safe. But she forgot that lesson. So And, and now she's suffering. The playroom that once upon a time had a child in it no longer has a child in it. Chapter two is six months earlier. She's at a party. Her daughter is playing a children's party. Her daughter comes to her and says that a child hit her. She deals with it in a very level-headed sort of way. Like, Heine, you're okay. Don't worry about it. Go play. The mom, who's, who, who's the mom of the other child, right? Like the child who supposedly hit her daughter, comes to her and is, is kind of like 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 frosty about it. She She says, you know, your daughter scratched my daughter. And the protagonist in her head has a lot of anxiety, but in her behavior, she's trying to keep cool and trying to say, Hey, that's just kids. You know, my daughter says your daughter hurt her and it's okay. They're just children. The mom, again, is awful to her, like this, this other woman, but we do see her anxiety. And then this woman leaves, and as she's leaving, she bumps into this other woman who the protagonist then realizes is the mom influencer she loves, the person whose life seems exactly like she imagined motherhood to be, but not at all like motherhood actually is. And they start like whispering about her and looking at her. So that's what happens.
0: Thank you. Okay. And
3: what did you think about them? I want to read a great first line because this is an amazing first line. The droplets from the crystal chandelier twirled rainbows onto the carpet where little feet used to dance among the colors, trying to catch the green or red with her plump toes. What makes this line so amazing is the used to, the you, little, little feet used to, because immediately I go, wait, where are the feet? Where'd the feet go? So if the feet aren't dancing anymore, like where are the feet? I want to know where the feet are. Where is the child, right? So this is really great. These pages are really, really awesome. I'm going to control myself and not just compliment them and actually offer useful, hopefully useful notes. But I do want to say like, this is, this is amazing. There's a little bit of repetition on a line level. I marked it for you. I highlighted, I offered suggestions on writing on a line level. There's a paragraph that I line edited for you, just offering suggestions on what you could do. Your writing is at like 95%. You need a 5% push to make this perfectly, perfectly polished. This is normal. All drafts have this. It's just that there are sentences that are longer than they have to be. There are um, are repetitions of words, like I said. Some words aren't the strongest words possible. Like the word fun, when you're talking about the way the Insta mom framed her life, there's, there's got to be a stronger word, right? Like I'm offering you suggestions. Ignore my suggestions if they're not resonating with you, but do a line edit of this because you're that close, Usually I don't spend too much time talking about writing on a line level because there are structural things that need work and there are no structural things that need work in your case. So this is excellent. Then my second note for you is interiority in chapter two. I do not have children of my own, but I am a godmother and I used to take my goddaughter and her best friend to parties all the time years ago. If someone told me that my goddaughter bit their child, I'd be very skeptical. It's not that I would automatically say it would never happen because, of course, you investigate. But I would just be like, Chloe would never do that. Like, she was not a kid who bit other kids. It's ridiculous. I've never heard this of anyone. It's the first time. If, if I did hear it, it would be the first time. My point is, her interiority should reflect this. If her daughter comes to her and says, Mommy, the child bit me, is her daughter always saying this? Or is this the first time her daughter is saying this? When the mom comes, the the other woman comes and accuses her child of actually having been the one who scratched, has this ever happened to her before? Has Has her child displayed, I guess, behavioral problems might be excessive, but like, has this ever happened to her kid? Is she skeptical or is she like, yep, that's my kid. Probably she did scratch this other kid. And it doesn't actually matter because there's no right or wrong, but her thoughts should reflect whether it's the first time, how common this is, et cetera, et cetera. Her thoughts are reflecting other things, which again, great, but they should also reflect this because this is something that someone would automatically think if, if their child comes to them and, and mentions that this happens. So very minor notes. This is really great. Once you're ready to query, if you're interested in querying me, I would love to see this because it sounds like a really cool concept and I really like your writing.
0: Thank you so much to Carly and CC for those critiques. We really appreciate them as per usual. Right, let's go to today's guest.
2: My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off.
0: Hi, everyone. It's
3: Cece here, and I'm so excited because I'm about to chat with Chanel Clayton about her book, The Cuban Heiress. So I read The Cuban Heiress to interview Chanel, and I was so glad I did because this book, not only is it great fun, and there's a really cool twist that I did not see coming, but this book has so many gold nuggets that writers can absorb in learning about the craft. So I'm hoping to ask her about this. And let's hope that she gives us some really great tips. Okay, I'm going to read her bio and then we're going to welcome her in. Chanel Clayton is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, The Last Train to Key West, When We Left Cuba, Our Last Days in Barcelona, and Reese Book Club's Pick Next Year in Havana. Originally from Florida, she grew up on stories of her family's exodus from Cuba following the events of the Cuban Revolution. Her passion for politics and history continued during her years spent studying in England, where she earned a bachelor's degree in international relations from Richmond, the American International University in London, and a master's degree in global politics from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Clayton also received her Juris Doctor from the University of South Carolina School of Law. Please join me in welcoming Chanel Clayton. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So we are here to discuss the Cuban heiress. And I'm so glad we are, first, because I really, really enjoyed your novel. I read it. I read it like M&Ms, like it was totally addictive. It was so much fun, so well written. I'm sure you know how talented you are, but I also am super excited to talk about it because I feel like there's a lot that listeners can learn from this book. And it's obviously not your first book, but I want you to try to put yourself in our listeners' shoes. Most of them, I think it's fair to say that they're still working on their breakout novel. And a thing we talk about a lot here is POV. This is dual point of view. We have Elena's point of view and we have Catherine's point of view. And we start with Elena's. How did you make that decision?
4: So I think for me, Elena's story was really the heart of the book. Catherine actually came to me first. So if I'm being honest, you know, the, I don't want to say hear voices, but My characters speak to me a bit. And so when I was coming up with the idea for the novel, I definitely heard Catherine first. But when I was thinking about how I wanted to frame the book, and without giving away too many spoilers, it really felt like Elena's character and her experiences are really what's driving the novel. And so I really wanted to bookend the the first chapter and then the ending to be from her perspective. And I wanted readers to feel like they were boarding the ship with her. So the Cuban Airs takes place on a luxury cruise liner in 1934. And the readers pick up the, the book when the main characters are, are boarding and then they kind of go through the journey with them on the cruise. So I wanted readers to feel that kind of immersion where they're walking on the gangway, you know, they're handing their passport over and, and feel like they're kind of in lockstep with the main characters.
3: And how did you make the decision to write Elena in third and Catherine first? Because that's that's like a, not unusual. There are plenty of books that do it, but I think it's more common to have like both in third or both mm-hmm. in first.
4: So I write multiple POVs a lot in my books, but this was the first time I had done that where I did one in third and one in first. And it was a, definitely a conversation I had with my editor. But the reason I did it was because Elena's storyline has a lot of secrets and I wanted to kind of keep her a little bit cloaked in mystery as the book progresses. So you kind of realize, you know, as you're going along that there's a little bit more to her than meets the eye. And I kept Catherine in first because I do really love working with first person. I feel like it adds an immediacy to your relationship with the character. And I wanted Catherine to kind of feel like a friend, you know someone who you were going on this journey with, someone who you were privy to their innermost thoughts. Whereas Elena, you you get to know her a bit more gradually and using that third person POV enabled me to do that. I didn't want her to be an unreliable unreli- narrator. And if I had done her in first person, I felt like I was going to have to play with a lot of lack of reliability in, in her character. So doing third gave me that kind of end result that I was looking for.
1: You know, I think that's a really interesting thing you're saying because,
3: like, I didn't know why you had done it. I knew it worked as a reader. I was enjoying it. But now that you explained it, this is true because even though we start with Elena, she's very, very guarded isn't the word, but she's she's keeping secrets and she's open about the fact that she's keeping secrets. We have lines in, in on page three, things like, her prey is nowhere to be found, but no matter on a ship this size, it will be impossible to escape. And of course, we're thinking, who is her prey? Is it Catherine? Is it someone else? Like, mm-hmm. who Who is her prey? And she's keeping so many secrets, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like she's withholding because she does give mm-hmm. us a lot as well. One example is when she says that getting on the boat cost her everything financially, like everything she had, it was worth every penny and then some. So you establish those stakes right away. And I agree that, you know, obviously her story is at the heart of the book, but I guess my question is by alternating from Elena to Catherine, Catherine is more easily likable, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, she feels like a friend. That's just how she sounds like. What theories did you want the reader to be having at the beginning of the story? Like, what directions did you want them to be thinking, oh, the book will probably go in this direction, and then you'd surprise them later?
4: So I think as a, an author, one of my favorite things is kind of that idea that when you get to an end of a chapter, and it, it doesn't matter which book I'm I'm writing, if it's, you know, historical fiction that's a little less heavy on suspense, or if it's a more suspenseful historical fiction like The Human Eras*. I want readers to get to the end of the chapter and feel like they have to immediately read the next one. I want them to, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night and you're like, I have to go to bed, but Oh wait, I just got to the end of chapter 20 and something happened, So I got to stay up and get to 21. And so Really, it was just that idea of wanting to keep the reader engaged to know more about her story. And I really saw her character as kind of that axiom of uh, still waters run deep. You know, that idea that on the surface, you thought you were getting one thing with her. But as you kind of uncover the layers, you really realize... You know, how much she's been through, how those things have impacted her. And, you know, you use the word guarded, which I I think is actually really appropriate to describe her because she is someone, you know, without giving away too many spoilers, she's been through some trauma in her life she's been betrayed. I mean, that's kind of in the blurb. So we we established that up front, but she's someone who has a hard time trusting people and very much understandably so. And so giving her that point of view where you understood that about her character, I thought was really important and, and wanting readers to feel like they were getting to know her, just like you would be getting to know someone in real life. You know, that's another thing I think about when I write a lot is, you know, often you'll get like comments, you know, editorial comments being like, well, why would the character do this? And I think it's always a question of how do we reveal a character's motivation to the reader? Because in real life, you don't meet someone and know their entire backstory at a page. You know what I mean? It's kind of interwoven into your interactions and you you grow to appreciate them, you know, based on those experiences. And so I try to do the same thing with my characters and my readers, is that idea of you're getting to know my characters. There's enough to hook you at the beginning, you know, that you want to keep reading, but also that relationship deepens as the novel goes.
1: You mentioned Elena doesn't trust
3: people, which of course is true. And she has good reason not to. And yet she has to trust someone, at least to a degree, in the very Mm -hmm. first chapter. Can you let us know what happens in that first chapter for our listeners? So
4: in the first chapter, she goes to the the cargo room and the storage of the ship, and she retrieves a weapon. And it really kind of ends with, you know, wondering, we as you mentioned before, you know, we know she's on the ship, she's searching for her prey. And you're kind of wondering, why is she in this cargo area? What is she looking for? And while she's there, she comes across a man who she sort of concludes is, is likely involved in some of the smuggling that's going on. So during this time in the 1930s, you have the end of the Cuban Revolution of 1933, and there were a lot of rumors with the SS Mora Castle, the real-life ship that the book is set on, that they were smuggling weapons to Cuba because there was quite a bit of political unrest at the time. And so she sort of crossed paths with this man who she believes has an agenda, and they they have a, a connection in common. They have a man that they've both relied on. She's gone to this man in New York for documents. He's you know worked with this man to smuggle weapons. And so, you know, I think there's a bit of a kinship in the fact that Elena's Cuban. She's been living in the U.S., but obviously has strong ties to her homeland. The man she meets Julio is Cuban as well. He's, you know, involved in some of the the activities going on in Cuba. And so I think there's a bit of an understanding and connection there with them where they come from the same place and they can kind of start almost in the middle of a conversation proverbially because they do have kind of that shared understanding and, and that shared knowledge.
3: And obviously, I mean, I anyway, I feel like all all readers will agree with me, but when I saw her interaction with with Julio, I was like, "Don't trust him. Don't trust him." I understood why she had to. She had no choice, right? But at the same time, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is gonna come back and bite her." like i I was just really nervous for her, and I think that that's part of the. Of the genius of starting a story in that place because we become invested in we saw her make a decision we were in her head as she had to calculate really fast in the moment because his presence there was not expected it was a disruption that upped the tension up the stakes and so i was really invested and i was surprised by the reveal which we will not say what the reveal was but there's a really cool twist and all i'll say is that it has to do with a relationship you think it's one thing but really it's another And there's a blurb at the back of your book that reads a tense, compelling thriller in which we are never sure who is the hunter and who is the hunted. I loved that blurb, don't get me wrong. But I mean, I guess until the twist, I was like, I know who's the hunter and who's the hunted. Like this person doesn't know how to read, I guess. And then of course I found out that I did not know. I was surprised and it made total sense in retrospect. And I was like, oh, I should have seen that coming. But it was so much fun, right? Which is what we want when we read books. My question to you is given all this, intricate plot and very careful dance between withholding and revealing, which is so hard to do. It's like a web that you're creating. Everything's intentional. It's a delicate balance. Do you plot or are you a pantser? What's your situation? And you're laughing. So I'm, I'm guessing there's a story there. I don't plot. <laughs> are you serious right now? You no, don't plot. Like,
4: not at all. Um like, Panthers, I, I am rejoice. I don't plot at all. Yes, no, I, am, <laughs> I am a pantser. I it just, I've tried the other, it does not work well for me. Yeah. So no, I, the one tip I will give if you're a pantser and you're working with multiple POVs or multiple timelines or, you know, anything where you're switching scenes and those switches are so important is I write in Scrivener and I really, really love Scrivener. It's a program that you can purchase and what is great about it. I write in the novel with parts, uh, like format that they give you. And you can move the scenes around really easily. Like you literally just drag the scene and it, it you know, moves to a different place. And I, I work with that a lot because obviously, yes, like I have to be very careful about what I'm revealing in one storyline and how that's going to impact subsequent storylines. So having that tool at my disposal is really useful, but I don't plot. My characters really kind of just take me on the journey. And, you know, when I come up with an idea for my books, I have a very, very supportive agent and my editor's great. And they'll kind of just go off a very small <laughs> blurb that I will give them. Typically, it's just a kind of a couple of sentences and they'll let me run with that. And then I really build out from there. So, you know, I'll know the setting, I'll know the time period. I'll have an idea of who my protagonists are before I start writing. And then it really just, I kind of, I don't know if I like just open my mind and try to think of what that first scene looks like. I always have to have the first scene. So I write in chronological order at the beginning, and then I will kind of dance around once I have like that first chapter or two, then sometimes I'll, I'll go out of order. And I usually don't know where I'm going to end up. Sometimes that can change a little bit and how I get there can change a little, a lot obviously, (laughs) but yes, definitely. I think the the challenge and fun of writing comes out for me when I'm sort of waiting to see the story come out on the page. And then obviously revisions are super helpful for cleaning things up and realizing, oh, like I should have had this chapter go before this one, or I need to, you know, move this reveal here. And so I do a lot in revisions, like my heavy lifting really comes out at, at that phase.
3: And how long does it take you to draft that first chapter where it's, I guess, more intuitive based on what you're telling me? And then what does the revision timeline look like? And who helps you? Do you have beta readers, critique partners? I know you mentioned your agent and your editor, but I'm guessing maybe somebody reads it first or maybe not.
4: No. So it's a hard question for me to answer because I will be honest, it's really publication driven. So I publish a book a year. And what that really typically means for my schedule is I will be drafting one book, editing one book, and publicizing another book kind of at the same time. And so it really becomes a dance of, okay, it's release week. So I'm not writing, I'm not editing, but release week's over and my edits are due. So now, you know, that's where my focus is going. So I don't know that I can really say exactly how long I write pretty quickly. And I think some of that comes from, I wrote Romance before I wrote historical fiction and romance, you know, you publish like three books a year. And so you kind of get into that habit. So that has been very helpful for me, I think. But, you know, it can probably take me a few months to draft. And then revisions, I'll revise a bit myself. I send it to my agent, my editor. It really depends on schedules who reads it first. Sometimes my agent will, sometimes she has other, you know, client work on her plate. My editor reads it first. And then we just go back and forth on revision passes and, you know, then obviously copy edits and proofreading. So it just kind of depends on where we are in the production timeline. You know, am I going to get three weeks to turn my revisions back? Am I going to get, you know, two months? It's usually closer to three weeks, Um, but it just kind of depends on, you know, what, what the deadlines are and when they need the book.
3: That sounds like so much fun for your agent and your editor. Like for you, it sounds very stressful and fun, but for them, it sounds like so much fun because they get to read this and like offer opinions. Do they ever disagree?
4: So I will admit, my agent and I are always pretty similar. Like we have similar tastes and kind of similar perspectives on the book. My editor and I are, are pretty similar too, but definitely a lot will come out in our discussions and I'll sometimes make, you know, big changes. Like I've had some books where we've literally changed who the POV characters are based on our discussions, which is, you know, a big lift on a book. I've had other ones where it's been much smaller. So it really just depends on the book. We always do kind of long editorial calls and we'll we'll go back and forth and and she's really great at you know pointing out what's not working and we'll sort of brainstorm how to how to make it you know where it needs to be. So I think in the drafting phase I really try to give myself the freedom, especially because I'm often on a tight timeline to get the words on the page and get the vision there. And then in the edits I'm kind of like, okay, this is messy in some places. Like let's clean this up. Let's, you know, polish this. And that's really where I feel like I do the bulk of kind of the most important work really for me is is in those phases.
3: That makes total sense. And what, I guess, what do you think comes easiest to you? And what do you think you struggle with the most?
4: So i it's really different parts of my brain. And I like each phase for different reasons. So I think the drafting part feels um, almost like cathartic for me. I'm the least like creative person in any other aspect of my life you'll meet. I have no like creative outlets. And so this is like my one thing that... You know, if I've had a bad day or I'm stressed about something, I can sit down at my computer and I can write and it just feels very freeing. And I don't have any voices in my head or any pressure. Like I literally kind of just write for myself, I think. And then in the edit phase, I'm like, oh, that's terrible. (laughs) Like, what were you thinking? And that's when I really, you know, I cut sentences. I'm like horrified with myself because, you know, I made a mistake or something. And, And there's freedom in that too. Like, I think it's just you put different hats on. Like, I could not be as harsh with myself in the drafting phase as I am with the editing phase because I would never write a word because I would be so afraid that it wasn't good enough but in you know that freedom then I can clean it up and I there's like a symbiosis of the relationships because you know that they both work so well together like I don't worry in the drafting phase because I'm like I'm gonna have the time to get everything where it needs to be so even if it is terrible like everything's fixable you know
3: absolutely and i love what you said about it being freeing because that to me tells me that you have joy in the process and you have to right because yes <laughs> it's impossible to expect every day to be a good day that's just never going to happen but if you mm-hmm. don't allow yourself that joy then then what's the point really mm-hmm. and i and i get what you're saying about edits too because in the in the edits phase you You have to take into consideration the market, the reader, your editor, your agent, everyone, right? But when you write, I guess to your to your point, it's just for you. And that sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a great, a great thing that you have. It is, yes. Question about the historical fiction aspect of this. The Moral Castle, I I mean I guess I know this only because I read your book. I didn't know about this before but actually existed. Research, like what does research look like for you?
4: So that varies by book too, I will be honest. Typically, I would say the most kind of defining thing of of research is the scope of what I'm writing about. So, I wrote a book uh, a few years ago called The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, and that was set during the Cuban fight for independence from Spain at the end of the 19th century. And there was a lot in that book. Like there was a lot that was going on in the US, a lot that was going on in Cuba. There was a biographical figure that I was writing about. And so I did a ton of research for that one with the books that are on slightly shorter timelines. So for example, with the Cuban heiress, the, the book really spans the the length of the cruise, which is seven days. And there's a tragedy that happens on the ship, a real life tragedy that I was inspired by. And so a lot of my research really centered on that event because of the the tragedy, there were a lot of investigations. So you have first person accounts, you know, a lot of sources that are available to kind of understand, you know, what it would have been like for the characters had they been on the ship, you know, what happened in the immediate aftermath. And so that was really useful, but it was a different research lift because I was really focusing on, you know, the ship and what was happening. I've, fortunately written a few books set in the 1930s now so that was really helpful to be able to bring in all of that past research on you know what was going on in Cuba at the time you know obviously the great depression is happening in the united states you have the recent end of prohibition so you really find that the research kind of builds on itself i think with each of these books and especially when you're talking about similar places or similar moments in history you kind of start to get like a macro level view of of the historical events that i think helps with each
1: book and do you research as you write? Or do you do the research before? Or how how does that work?
4: So That depends, too. Clearly, each of my books, we we kind of take it as we come. Um, No, so it'll depend. So with my first historical fiction, Next Year in Havana, that was really inspired by, you know, me being Cuban American, the stories I sort of grew up on. And I had a lot of introductory knowledge about the Cuban Revolution. My family came as refugees after. So with that one, I really jumped into writing and then I would fill in research sort of as I went when I needed, but I had a very, you know, clear story that I knew I wanted to tell with some of my other books, like the Cuban airs, for example, you know, I'll do some front load research because that was an event that I was not familiar with until I, you know, started working on the book. And then as I write, obviously, you know, I sort of go down the different research rabbit holes of, you know, what would it have been like uh, at, you know, the dinner or what would it have been like to sit at the captain's table and and that sort of thing. So it's a mix of both, I would say.
3: You kind of made me want to be on the ship and I'm not like a ship person, but it just sounded like so much fun. Not the parties or anything like that, but again, the relationships, I just wanted to be on the ship. I wanted to go back to something you said that you, your background is romance. This is not romance, but there is, there is romance (laughs) here. There's romance in the story and I think it just elevates it so much. Did you make that decision early on? Is that something that you wove in later? Tell us about that.
4: So I, that one came pretty early to me. You know, I mentioned Catherine sort of spoke to me first and she's one of the two heroines and she has a romance with the man she meets on the ship. He's sort of a mysterious figure, um, a little bit of a scoundrel, and he really sort of matches wits with her. And and that's what I wanted for her. I saw her, she's a very direct character. She has a lot of agency and I Wanted to sort of pit her with someone who would challenge her. I wanted her to be able to challenge him. And I really loved writing their dialogue and kind of watching the sparks fly between them. So I had so much fun writing their scenes that I really leaned into that. I think, especially, you know, a lot of the books I write are dealing with heavier events, you know, the Cuban Revolution or the fight for independence from Spain, or, you know, in this case, with the tragedy that happened with the Moro Castle. And I like to look at kind of that intersection between the personal and the political and look at those moments in people's lives that even though you're going through these struggles, you still see these really beautiful, joyous things happening. And so weaving love stories into my books is something really important to me because I think it really speaks to the human experience of, you know, what we go through when we go through difficult situations. And it's just something that, you know, I find joy in and and hope brings joy to my readers as well.
1: And
3: it's such a great way to develop character because- Mm -hmm how we fall in love what resistance we offer if any when we are falling in love why we are resisting if we are resisting it all speaks to you know what what happened in our lives before mm-hmm. you know with Catherine when she was so i guess skeptical Of of Harry, I think that that made me curious to know. Wait, how did she become who she became? And we we are she's so open. We know Catherine's backstory. Um, well, (laughs) except for the part about the twist, but we know we know enough to really understand her as a person. But there's a difference between understanding her and feeling with her. And I started feeling with her when I saw her interact with Harry. So that was so special. I need to know beginning, end, and twist. Was that something you knew those three things when you started like was this first scene always the first scene did you change the first scene the ending did you change the ending and obviously don't tell us what the ending is Mm -hmm. Um, the twist the, the twist about the relationship did you always know that or did you like figure that out halfway through like what how did that happen.
4: So beginning was always there. That came, you know, very early on. And like I said, I can't, I can't really write unless I have that. There's just something about I have to have like that first scene on paper because I think that's my introduction to my characters as well. You know, it's when the readers meet them, but it's also when I meet them. So I, I have to feel like that's set. So that didn't really change. The twist came early. I would say probably after I wrote the first chapter. I'm trying to remember, but I mean, it wasn't immediate to me like I knew these people were going to be on the ship and I was still untangling what the relationships between the people were going to be but I pretty early on realized what that connection was going to be probably within like a week of, of starting writing and then the ending I played with the ending a bit but I that came out pretty early too and then we just did like kind of subtle tweaks and edits on um, my editor and I kind of going back and forth I, it's hard because I don't want to spoil there's a major motivating reason that Elena does the things she does that was not in earlier drafts. So I did add like a pretty big element into the book that that came in revisions, but I don't want to spoil what it is too much. So
3: after um, we stop recording, I will ask you about it because I need to know now. Okay. (laughs) So you do two things that I see a lot of writers trying to do, and they're really hard things to do. And if you don't get it right, I mean- I know, I know a lot of agents talk about this, like you just, you just lose the reader. You know, it's not, it's not just me. It's, it's a lot of readers, a lot of agents. We, it does not work unless you do it really well. And thing number one is dream sequences. Everyone listening, this does not start with a dream sequence. Okay. But there are dream sequences in this book. And I think the reason why it works is because we learn something new with the dream. Or otherwise I'd be like, I already know this. I already know she's a traumatized person. I already know, like, why am I seeing this? It just slows down the pace, but it's actually really interesting. And also it's very short. Mm-hmm. Have you ever gotten pushed back for the dream scenes? How do you write those? Did you add those later? Tell us about that.
4: I will be honest as a reader. I don't like dream scenes. either.
3: <laughs> Nobody does. Nobody does. Unless you do it really well, unless you do it really um, well, which you do. And there, there are other things I've
4: done in my books that I don't love as a reader, but Sometimes it feels like the story needs it. And and with the dream sequences, you know, it it was that I needed the reader to learn this information about the characters. and, And that was the most effective and efficient way to kind of impart the information. And also, you know, I was very cognizant of trauma kind of leaving an imprint on people in different ways. And I think having a recurring thought or dream when you're processing something, and especially when it's as in your face as it is on the ship it made logical sense to me that that would be like a normal trauma reaction that someone might have in that situation. So that's why I put it in. Um, I did try to keep it short because I, I too do not love dream sequences and also wanting to end the dream sequences. And so it for the listener, it's kind of cut through different scenes in the book, but it's a continuation of the dream. And I wanted to always cut it in a place that left the reader suspenseful and also felt like it connected really well into what was happening in real time on the ship. So you clearly kind of understood, okay, this is why I'm learning this information now. It feels cohesive in like the larger story that we're telling.
3: It 100% felt cohesive. And you're so right. Again, did not realize this as I was reading, but now it makes sense. I'm thinking about the first dream sequence, right? That we learned. It's Elena's point of view. I'll say this to the listener. We learned one thing that happened, a big thing that happened in her past if she had thought about that, instead of with us seeing that in a dream, she mm-hmm. would have had to think about it in a comprehensive way that would have given all away all the reveals.
4: I think it would have lost impact, too. You know, you would have kind of not felt it as though you were in her shoes. Like, I think you needed to be in her shoes to understand why she does the things she does.
3: That's exactly right. And so this way... There's more immediacy. You're 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 showing, not telling. Like we're living it with her, even though it's in the past, and it's not mm-hmm. like you added a new timeline, right? But it's present tense. It's 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 very immediate. But also, you're not just giving it all away because again, that dream sequence happens too early in the novel. So if she had thought about it and you, if she hadn't thought about the other things, I would have felt manipulated. I would have felt. Which I know, by the way, is what every author is doing. All authors are manipulating, but you can't Darkly feel are. manipulated. It's like a magic trick. It's delicate. We know, it's
4: delicate. yes.
3: Well, we know the magician isn't actually cutting the woman in half, but if it mm-hmm. looks obvious, then then it's not fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So the second thing you do really well, which I see a lot of writers attempting to, and I'm always trying to give them advice about how to improve, and your book is your book is a great resource to learn how to do that is. Specifically Catherine, she in the beginning comes across as a passive character, not quite passive because she is she is conning someone, so very active in that fun sense, but mm-hmm. but someone who things happen to her as opposed to she makes things happen. That's what I mean by passive. Mm-hmm. And yet she doesn't feel passive at all, at all, even though again things are happening to her and not the other way around. And I think that one, it has to do with yes, the fact that we know right away that she is she's conning someone right from the beginning Mm -hmm. we don't know all the layers but right away but we do understand that there's this i guess juicy element to her intentions to her motivation but also because through her interactions with harry with various other people her interiority she might be acting in a very let's say ladylike way but her interiority is there's so many layers right like yeah she might be behaving like a proper lady and let's face it proper ladies historically things just happen to them as opposed to them making things happen Mm -hmm. but in her head she's very active how do you write a character's interiority? something that just comes naturally to you. Like, do you have any tips for us?
4: So that's part of why I love first person so much. And I know first person can kind of be controversial. Some readers hate first person POV. And I, I understand that. And that's one thing I love about it is I really feel like it enables the reader to feel like they're in the character's head. And, and to be honest, I think many of us when we read, I know I certainly do this, there's almost a a self insertion that happens. I mean, we sort of put ourselves in the protagonist's shoes and go through the novel as though we're going through the book. And so that's what I love about first person POV is I feel that's a very natural vehicle for that. And I also really like to play with sort of appearances and, you know, that idea of kind of having a preconceived notion about someone based on how they look or the limited set of facts that you have about them and then as you get to know them, you know, sort of peeling back those layers and realizing that there's much more than meets the eye or perhaps, you know, you thought something about them and you were totally off the mark. And so that's that's something I enjoy working with in my books. I feel like that's, you know, something we all navigate in real life, you know, either how people perceive us or how we perceive others. And so in bringing my characters together, watching them kind of get to the heart of who each one is in a romantic sense or in a platonic sense, I think really unveils their character and it helps you kind of root for them. Even if you thought they were somebody you couldn't root for because on the surface they seemed so unlikable, you know, I think it sort of gets to a relatability that at the heart, you know, we all have common commonalities between us and and you help to see that when you really strip away those layers and feel like you can have that intimate connection with the character.
3: I love what you're saying, right? Like you're talking about leveraging the reader's unconscious. You hear you know, Young woman conning a man into marrying her, the man thinks she's an heiress. This happens very early on, by mm-hmm. the way. And you think you know everything there is to know about her. But then after the layers are peeled, you understand there's so much more. And that surprises the reader. And surprise is something that delights our brain. Mm -hmm. Because surprise makes us think, oh, if I keep on reading, I'll continue to be surprised. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it makes you revisit what you read before and kind of see it in a new light. And that's just so much fun, right? Like it's that puzzle effect. We're putting a puzzle together. The story of these two women, the story of, of their journey. And it's just so, so great, I guess. We're, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you, what comes next for you? Like, cause I need, I need your next book. And you said you promised a book a year. So now we want to know what, what comes next. So I,
4: my next book will be out next year. I am in the edit process right now. My edits are due in a couple of days actually. So I'm in the thick of it, but um, it's set in Miami. It's a dual timeline and it's set in a fictional mansion. That's sort of a a gothic mansion at a time when Miami's really being developed and there's two heroines one's Cuban one is American and you'll see how their their lives sort of intersect but it has a lot of suspense a lot of a lot of mystery so it's it's been fun to work
3: on thank you for making time for us in the middle of edits like that's that's so generous of you um <laughs> I will ask one more thing of you before I let you go. We always ask our guests on the podcast to recommend a book. It could be a book that you read and loved, or it can be a book that you haven't read but you're excited to read. Let us know about something fun you're reading.
4: So I am gonna recommend The Gentleman's Gambit by Evie Dunmore. And I just finished it. I finished an arc, it's out December 5th, but it's historical romance and it is amazing. I've I've loved all of her books, but this one is incredible. It's just really like great banter. If you liked some of the kind of back and forth in the Cuban heiress, this very much has that same feel. She, her hero is Lebanese and he is going to England because he's interested in stealing back some antiquities that have been stolen. And so it's just this really interesting kind of cat and mouse between them, but also just this really beautiful love connection. You learn so much about British history, Lebanese history. Evie's Lebanese, and she just really tells the book with so much heart. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous, so I I can't recommend it enough.
3: Now I want to read that. You did a very good job of pitching that. Thank you so much for joining us. To all our listeners, Chanel's book, *The Cuban Heiress*, is available. If you do decide to read it, which I highly, highly recommend, I need you to tweet or find me on Instagram and tell me whether you could see the twist coming, because I am 100% sure you will not see it coming, and how you felt after you found out, but not in a way that shares spoilers. Do, do it discreetly. You know how to do it. Okay, so exciting, and thank you so much.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello,
1: listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, We're having a live, cozy, 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Cece agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.